Welcome to this week's episode of the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Dr. Pankit Vashani to discuss his path into oncology, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and specifically myelofibrosis. Dr. Vashani is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, an associate scientist of experimental therapeutics. At UAB, he is involved in various clinical trials as a principal investigator. He leads the Leukemia BMT Working Group and serves as the medical director of the Clinical Research Unit. He also serves as a panelist helping create the AML and MPN treatment guidelines for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Vashani, for joining us today on the PQI podcast. To start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell our audience about your current role? Thank you, Ginger. Um, it's a wonderful pleasure to be here at, uh, and, and be part of this wonderful podcast. Uh, I understand it is a great resource for those who listen to, to understand uh, in a very concise manner what they can get out of uh, for any given drug or a disease space. Well, I am Pankit Vachani. I'm an assistant professor of medicine I'm in the Division of Hematology and Oncology in the Department of Medicine at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, I also serve as a panel member from UAB on the NCCN guidelines for myeloproliferative neoplasms and systemic mastocytosis. Um, in addition to all those things, my, my role includes that being uh, the medical director of our clinical research unit. Um, I've been at UAB for about four years now, and it's uh, it's a wonderful uh, feeling to be part of this uh, growing and, and already wonderful program that we have in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay, fantastic. So I know you you just mentioned you specialize in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Um, so will you tell us a little about your path to oncology and then specifically to this area of interest? Definitely. I did my medical school uh, in Qatar. Uh, that's in the yeah. Middle East. I used to live over there, actually. And uh, I, I graduated from Cornell, uh, Qatar. Cornell University has a campus over there. Most people are not aware about that. No, uh, I was right. not. So, yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a medical campus which uh, emulates and replicates the courses from that of its uh, main sister institution, which is Cornell University in New York. Um, so after finishing my medical school, I uh, did my uh, internal medicine residency at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, uh, Virginia. That was an incredible experience. I got to see and treat patients of all kinds of vast area of pathology, and also got to make many friends and uh, learn from both friends and uh, my mentors. Uh, subsequent to that, I went to Roswell Park uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center, uh, previously known as Roswell Park uh, Cancer Institute. Uh, that is in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and uh, boy, that was a great experience. Uh, it, Roswell Park is the first cancer center. Uh, it was founded in, I believe, 1898. And an incredible place with incredible people, uh, lots of research, lots of clinical trials. And uh, I uh, uh, 
decided to specialize in leukemia. Always wanted to do that actually, but uh, my feelings were somewhat confirmed in my fellowship at Roswell Park. Um, I also served as a chief fellow over there, and uh, uh, my mentors there included uh, Dr. Yunus Wang uh, and Dr. Elizabeth Griffiths. Uh, they specialize in AML and MDS, so again, myeloid neoplasms. Um, but once I completed my fellowship, I uh, decided to come to UAB. Dr. Ravi Bhatia, uh, our division director at that time, he hired me uh, to this very wonderful and growing program to which he himself belongs. He, he himself is a leukemia physician um, and he had hired me. So I came up over here in 2018 and uh, uh, I've been practicing leukemia uh, at UAP. Wow. The way MPNs happened is uh, uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, there, there was a, a lack of an MPN um, a person at UAB at the time that I came in. So that was a space that needed to be filled. And number two, probably more importantly, I was uh, 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 trained by Dr. Prithvi Polis when I was in residency at VCU. Uh, he had moved on and he currently is at MD Anderson uh, in the Cancer Center in Houston, Texas but we have always stayed in touch. He's a mentor and a friend. And so knowing him and knowing that there was a space that needed to be filled here, I decided to uh, take on MPNs uh, as an area of interest. And that continues to today. Okay, wow. I, I love it that you saw an area of need and you, you filled the gap. Um, and your journey is so interesting. So I, I have to know how, how does the weather or how did the weather in Buffalo compare to Qatar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you, that, it, it doesn't compare. There isn't much to compare. <laughs> uh, Qatar uh, is, a, is a country in the Middle East and, and the temperatures can go soaring high. You know, in, in, in summertime over there, the daily temperature can be as high as one uh, teens to 125. Uh, it's incredibly hot and it doesn't rain much. Uh, you usually don't see clouds over there. So the weather there is somewhat predictable. Um, and Buffalo, on the other hand, <laughs> gets a lot of snow, <laughs> has a lot of clouds. Uh, it, it's a cold place, but I... I'll tell you from having lived in, in, in a few different places, the summertime in Buffalo, like right now, for example, for us, when while we are recording July, August, maybe some parts of September, nothing beats that. Uh, the, the Buffalo uh, summer and maybe even some parts of fall are absolutely gorgeous. And then come to Birmingham, Alabama. And, and I think this is somewhere in the middle of all these places, <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the temperature here is is on the hot uh, hotter end, and and I like it. I, I get to go out and hike anytime I want, uh, be that summertime or January or February. I can do what I want. So this is kind of a happy medium for me. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. One of our Encoda staff members, Julianne, actually lives in Birmingham, um, and I keep saying I'm going to make it there to visit her because every it always looks gorgeous. Hey, if you come over, let me know. I will. I will for sure. I'll have to, I'll make it a work, a work trip. How about that? <laughs> Give Wonderful. me an Looking forward to it. <laughs> um, so 
I know that one of the, in the myeloproliferative neoplasms, um, you treat myelofibrosis. So it's something that we hear about a lot. And I think a lot of us don't know specific details or don't get too in depth with it. So um, can you give us the quick basics of this disease state? Sure thing. But let's first actually start from MPN or myeloproliferative neoplasms. Um, okay. the, the, the word for this group of conditions was actually myeloproliferative disorders, MPD. And, and uh, the understanding came about that maybe we should change the, the terminology to reflect what it really is, which is neoplasm. So and hence the name uh, changed to MPN or myeloproliferative neoplasms. Now, again, MPN is a group of disorders. It is not a single disease in itself. It's a group of disorders, like uh, the three being the most common being the polycythemia vera, essential thrombocythemia, uh, and primary myelofibrosis. So, these three disorders were uh, thought to be related to each other even decades and decades ago. Um, back in 1951, uh, uh, the editor of the journal Blood uh, and, and Ash President, Dr. Damashek, had postulated that maybe there was an undiscovered stimulus that, that connected all these different conditions, what seemed to be heterogeneous conditions, but nevertheless conditions, maybe there was a stimulus that connected all these uh, disorders under one group. And then fast forward by almost five decades, uh, in 2005, a mutation in JAK2 gene, Janus kinase uh, uh, gene was discovered. That was the JAK2 V617F mutation. And that turned out to be the undiscovered stimulus that Dr. Damashek was talking about. Yeah. So what this uh, particular genetic mutation does, and by the way, this is not the only one. Subsequent to that, we have discovered that there are other JAK2 gene mutations uh, uh, in other exons uh, in polycythemia vera, but also mutations in CALR mutation, uh, gene, C-A-L-R, and also MEPL. Uh, MPL, uh, uh, the, the three being the most common. So uh, we have subsequently discovered that these three genes uh, are commonly mutated in myeloproliferative neoplasms. What they do together is that when these mutations are found, and usually, by the way, these mutations are not found in the same patient at the same time, they are somewhat mutually exclusive with some rare exceptions aside. But when these mutations are found, the JAK-STAT pathway in the neoplasm is hyperactivated and it does not need a stimulus to be activated. So you have more proliferation, more cytokines, and, and the downstream effects of uh, those things. Now, you asked me about myelofibrosis, but again, uh, let's start with MPNs in general. So MPNs in general are marked by uh, uh, three things in common maybe actually four. Number one is that they have a, a, a variety of symptoms that are associated with the conditions. Now, some of these symptoms are, are somewhat vague, uh, uh, but they are very commonly found. For example, 
fatigue is, uh, uh, or inactivity. These are very commonly found in patients with MPNs. But then also there are some uh, uh, very niche symptoms, somewhat uh, uh, symptoms that would be somewhat unusual to other patients. For example, um, itching or pruritus. Uh, is, is something that we see a lot in patients with MPNs. We don't see it in other neoplasms or even other diseases, uh, but not just itching. You can have bone pain or fever or unintentional weight loss. So it's some of these constitutional symptoms. Then there can be symptoms related to um, the enlargement of the spleen. So you can have a left upper quadrant, abdominal discomfort, or for example, you can have uh, a, a, an early satiety whereby you feel that you are, you're, you're full even though you have barely eaten anything. Okay. And then there are symptoms uh, related to cytokines. So for example, some uh, patients complain about uh, issues with concentration. Uh, uh, we already talked about itching or pruritus. Uh, so, so again, to put it simply, a variety of symptoms is what uh, binds MPNs together. But the second thing that's also common in it is the propensity for thrombosis and bleeding. Mm. Now, these are contradictory things. Uh, almost they're on the opposite ends, but we do see that happen. Uh, as the bleeding part happens, generally speaking, when the platelet count is very high, which then subsequently uh, uh, puts the patient at a higher risk for bleeding. But even outside of that, patients with PV, ET, and myelofibrosis are at risk for thrombosis. So that's the second one. The third thing that uh, is somewhat common in, in patients with MPNs is cytosis, meaning higher uh, blood counts. So pa patients with all three conditions can have a high white blood count. They can have high platelet count. And in the case of polycythemia vera, they can also have a higher red blood cell mass or hemoglobin or hematocrit. These are connected things. So that was the third point about cytosis. And then the fourth point is the propensity towards an increased risk for transformation to AML, which is acute myeloid leukemia. Given that myeloproliferative neoplasms like the PVET and MF, given that these are myeloid neoplasms, over time they acquire more mutations, uh, undergo clonal changes, and they can, there can be a risk for, for progressing towards acute myeloid leukemia. Now, coming to myelofibrosis, which is one of these three uh, common MPNs. In myelofibrosis, yes, we definitely see the symptoms that we talked about. In fact, the symptom burden is on the higher end. Oh. Um, so that is one very distinct thing that we see in, in, in MF. The second uh, thing that, that draws attention from everyone is the, uh, the, the part about splenomegaly. Almost everyone, but not everyone, so around 80 to 90% of patients with a new diagnosis of myelofibrosis present with splenomegaly. Okay. And you can have the symptoms then associated of splenomegaly. Now, why is that happening? That happens because again, the JAK-STAT pathway is hyperactivated, the bone marrow is hypercellular, and the 
the the uh, blood production shifts to liver and spleen, which then subsequently leads to uh, uh, enlargement of the spleen and liver. Not to mention that, like the word myelofibrosis says, uh, uh, there is fibrosis or scarring, to put it very simply, reticulin and collagen uh, uh, fibrosis that's happening in the bone marrow. What that does is that it, it prevents normal hematopoiesis from happening. So again, the blood production then shift, uh, shifts to other organs like liver and spleen, leading to enlargement of the spleen. So that's the second thing besides symptoms uh, that's very, uh, very commonly found in myelofibrosis. And then the third thing that's very commonly found in myelofibrosis is anemia. Okay. If you were to uh, take a patient with myelofibrosis and uh, just follow them over time, with treatment or without treatment, virtually everyone at some point will develop anemia of some severity. Now, of course, there is around a 30 to 40% chance uh, of finding a patient at the time of diagnosis with moderate to severe anemia. But, but the point there being that anemia is a very uh, a common and a cardinal feature of myelofibrosis. So yeah, so splenomegaly symptoms and anemia are what define uh, myelofibrosis uh, as far as our clinical uh, presentation and clinical work is concerned. Okay, wonderful. And how long do you think it takes a patient to get diagnosed? So if you were to ask me about polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia, there the, the, the time to diagnosis can vary. So some patients can be so symptomatic that, that they go to their physicians and blood work gets done and lo and behold, the, the blood counts are abnormal, they get referred to a hematologist and the diagnosis could happen rather quickly. However, Many a times what we see for polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia uh, is, is that they uh, went in for their annual exam and someone at some point discovered that maybe their blood counts were off and sent them to a hematologist. But when you start doing the, the, the chart work and, and dig into their past history, maybe they actually had symptoms for many years before that. Maybe their blood counts were off for many years, even before they were first told about it. So there, for those two conditions, it can really vary. Uh, not to mention men, uh, uh, maybe one in four or, or one in five cases of PV or ET come in uh, at the time with a case of thrombosis, like for example, a DVT or PE or stroke, or a myocardial infarction, and that is how the, the, the workup happens. So there, for sure, there is a range. Now, when it comes to myelofibrosis, if you are talking about primary myelofibrosis, these patients can be quite symptomatic. They can have a big spleen. And usually, I would say uh, that the diagnosis is uh, done relatively quickly. Uh, the patient's present relatively quickly because of, of what's happening to them. Uh, uh, there's no telling, of course, how long the, the, the condition may have been in them uh, before they became symptomatic, but usually it's on the faster end. I would say uh, weeks to months, maybe a year or two at max. Um, on the other hand, if you happen to have secondary myelofibrosis, 
which is a condition or, or a terminology that we use to describe patients with polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia who have over time progressed to a, a, a myelofibrosis-like picture. There, the diagnosis uh, is in the making over many, many years because, of course, the progression of PV and ET to myelofibrosis happens gradually with more mutations, with more fibrosis, with slowly, slowly developing anemia. So that is over many years. Uh, so, so, Ginger, I wish I could give you a single answer, but it really depends on the condition uh, and, and whether you progressed or not. Okay. No, thank you. That That's a great answer. Um, and then with that, are there any updates in current treatments for myelofibrosis? And what would you say are the most important things for the team? So we have pharmacists, technicians, nurses, physicians to know to best manage these patients. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we mentioned before that in 2005, the JAK2 uh, gene mutation was first discovered. What's remarkable is that just six years later, uh, the first JAK2 and JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor was uh, FDA approved uh, for myelofibrosis, uh, that being Raxolitinib uh, or Jackafee, that's the brand name for now, uh, through Insight. So uh, Raxolitinib has been on market and available for patients to use for now 10 plus years. Um, it is an incredible drug at, at helping alleviate symptoms. Uh, uh, it also helps patients reduce their splenomegaly. And there is uh, a lot of research that uh, appears to show that by using it, and preferably by using it earlier in the disease course, maybe we are improving the overall survival of these patients as well. Now, something to keep in mind about rexolitinib is that uh, uh, the dosing of rexolitinib should be platelet-based. That is how it was done in the original COMFORT studies, uh, COMFORT 1 and COMFORT 2. And so keep in mind uh, uh, that your initial dose and even the subsequent doses should be based on that. Well, we had previously talked about how common anemia is at, during the journey of a patient. So when anemia happens, uh, sometimes the, the physicians and, and the healthcare providers are somewhat forced to decrease the dose of rexolitinib uh, because it can have an effect uh, on the overall hematopoiesis and possibly also that thereby causing anemia. Uh, so yes, rexolitinib may be reduced based on, on the severity of anemia, although we try not to do that. How, the, how else then do we manage the anemia? Well, use the adjunct therapies uh, if possible. For example, uh, erythropoietin uh, stimulating agents are used, uh, used commonly like uh, darpopoietin or procrit. Um, also, there are other agents like danazole, uh, but and every now and then some patients do require transfusions as well. But keeping those points aside, rapsolitinib is generally speaking a very well tolerated drug. Uh, a few years ago, maybe three years ago or so now, uh, fedrantinib was approved. Fedrantinib is also a JAK inhibitor, and uh, the approval of fedrantinib came for patients with 
intermediate to or high-risk myelofibrosis. Now, this drug could be used in, in second-line or first-line setting, although most of us use rexolitinib in first-line setting. Uh, in second-line setting, fedratinib can certainly be used, and uh, do some points to keep in mind uh, are that it can have GI intolerances, like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea can be seen in patients who go on fedratinib. Um, and, and the general advice there is, is to use uh, anti-emetics, anti-diarrheal agents early in the disease process, sometimes even prophylactically if needed to manage the, the adverse events. Okay. Uh, one other point to keep in mind about fedratinib or Inrepic is that uh, it has a black box warning uh, for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Uh, this is not commonly seen, but it was noted in a few patients, uh, somewhat debated, but nevertheless, it, it's part of the black box warning. And uh, my suggestion there is to, number one, check thiamine level at baseline and maybe even subsequently on follow-up. And certainly maybe just make to make everyone's life easy, have the patients on thiamine supplementation so you have other better things to worry about more uh, than, than Wernicke's encephalopathy. And finally, a third drug, which uh, also a JAK inhibitor, uh, which was approved actually on February 28th of 2022. So just, what, four or five months yeah, ago? Yes, yes. Right. That is Bacritinib. The, the uh, brand name is Wanjo. Now, this drug was uh, approved based on the results of persist uh, trials and PAC-203 studies uh, a, a confirmatory study uh, using pacritinib and comparing it against uh, physician's choice in patients with uh, myelofibrosis and thrombocytopenia is ongoing. That study is Pacifica. But coming again to the drug pacritinib, well, pacritinib is approved for patients with severe thrombocytopenia as defined as by, by platelet count of 50,000 or less. Uh, and uh, myelofibrosis. Again, that could be first line, that could be second line, uh, but it could be used now. Uh, much like fedratinib, here too, you can possibly have GI uh, side effects. Uh, and my suggestion and advice is just like fedratinib, which is to use anti-emetics, anti-diarrheal agents uh, as early in the process as possible ideally even prophylactically for the first one or two weeks, if not a little bit longer. Uh, there is also a, a, a point about QTC uh, prolongation. We have not seen this commonly, uh, but nevertheless, check an EKG early in the disease process. So again, we have better things to focus on after that. Okay, thank you. I think that was a great overview um, in, in a quick time period. And so with you've given us what's currently available, but do you also have any insight on the pipeline and what might be coming down the line for patients? Sure thing. And uh, I won't go in great details about the, the, the ones which are uh, possibly looking uh, uh, very promising, but I'll, I'll mention a few names. And it's hard to, uh, let me start with the disclaimer. There are so many clinical trials ongoing <laughs> in myelofibrosis. Uh, I, I just cannot cover every single thing here, but 
Let me mention some of those uh, interesting ones. So number one is momelotinib. This is a, 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 a JAK2 ACVR1 inhibitor. Uh, at ASCO 2022, a month and a half or two months ago, uh, we had the results of these presented at the uh, in a plenary session. And that was from a study called Momenta. Now, in that study, momelotinib was compared against danazol in patients who were symptomatic, had myelofibrosis, and had splenomegaly. So this drug is looking very promising, and we anticipate uh, that if FDA 2 thinks so, maybe we'll have an approval coming later this year or so. Uh, we think that the approval will very likely be in patients who have myelofibrosis and have anemia and or symptoms. So that is probably the one uh, area where it will come in. You know, we talked about, previously we talked about rexolitinib, fedratinib, and pacritinib. These are the three JAK inhibitors which are already available for use. They don't ameliorate anemia. On the other hand, momelotinib, which is looking uh, like it may gain approval from the FDA, uh, given its mechanism of action, can have anemia ameliorating benefits. So that is something definitely to look out for. Okay. Second thing is lospatercept. Now, lospatercept, as the audience would know, is, is approved in thalassemias and also uh, certain subtypes of myelodysplastic syndromes. And there is a study ongoing uh, the study name is Independence, and in that patients with uh, anemia uh, and myelofibrosis are, uh, are, are getting enrolled. Possibly uh, this drug may be approved for patients with anemia on JAK inhibitors, but again, we don't have the results. We'll have to wait and see, uh, but something to keep in, in our minds. In the on the other hand, in terms of uh, some other JAK inhibitors, which may be, uh, 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 let, let me correct myself, not JAK inhibitors, but rather some drugs which could be added on to JAK inhibitors, either in the frontline space or in the add-on space, uh, whereby you have had patients on JAK inhibitors, but the benefits have not been as well or as much as you wanted or possibly even the third setting, which is that someone was in JAK inhibitor, but now they are losing response. What can you add on at that time point? So almost like a second line setting. So for those three scenarios uh, put together, I, and without going in great details, I think there are three drugs which are looking very promising. Uh, number one, in no particular order, is a drug called Pelabrasib. So that is a BET uh, inhibitor and that is undergoing evaluation in manifest two study uh, in combination with raxolitinib in the frontline setting. The second one uh, is Navitoplex, which is a BCL2, BCL-XL inhibitor, first uh, uh, studied in the refined study. The data is out there for, for people to look at, uh, but we have the transform one and transform two studies ongoing uh, would be very exciting to see some positive data come out at some point um, over the next year or so, hopefully. And then there is the third one, which is parsaclasib. That is a PI3 kinase inhibitor. 
and uh, uh, that is ongoing in studies as well. Um, I think that too uh, will have some results in the in the year in the next year or so. So I have my eyes on these three uh, drugs for sure. Again, there are a variety of other clinical trials ongoing as well. If there was a podcast made just for that, I would be happy to come on and chat about all of those. Well, we ne- in the next season, we may have to design that and ha- have you come talk about just the pipeline. Um, sure. <laughs> really interesting. And it sounds like there are some new great options coming, hopefully, for patients too. Right. And then I'm going to maybe combine my next two questions into one um, and just you can give it a two-part answer. But I know um, you've mentioned UAB and the program and kind of your mentors, um, but can you tell us more about your program there at UAB? And I know you're, you're building that out for patients. And as part of that, what is your favorite part of your job? Sure. Uh, we have a growing and a big program in, uh, at UAB. Uh, we have, let's see, five or six leukemia physicians uh, and growing. We have five or six, I think six transplant physicians. We have six or seven myeloma physicians. And we have right now four lymphoma physicians. So that's a decently sized, I would say, a malignant hematology program. Um, uh, so when it comes to MPNs, we have the UAB MPN and mastocytosis clinic, with, which is a wonderful collaboration between our leukemia physicians um, as, as well as our transplant physicians. But also let's, let's not forget three other uh, groups of uh, uh, providers who are very important to this. One is uh, our, our colleagues from classical hematology. So every now and then, for example, when we have cases of thrombosis or bleeding, like we were speaking about, I have some excellent colleagues who I can reach out to. Um, number two, our colleagues from hematopathology. These are, you know, these myeloproliferative neoplasms and associated myeloid neoplasms can be very tricky at times. You need a, a very good hematopathology group to help you out uh, with that. Remember, if you get the diagnosis wrong, everything subsequently could be wrong. So we pay a lot of attention to the diagnostics part of it, and our hempath group is wonderful. And then the third one is our pharmacists, uh, and, and they are all part of our multidisciplinary conferences. They are part of our uh, discussions in terms of what treatments to use. And of course, on a day-to-day basis too, they are playing a very active role. Now, we work with all of these in our UAP, MPN, uh, and mastocytosis uh, collaborative group. But of course, we also have nursing staff, our advanced practice providers are there, social workers are there, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some uh, others right now who I will uh, immediately recall right after this podcast, but <laughs> this is a collaborative uh, 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 work, uh, Ginger. And to answer the, the second part of your question, which is what's my favorite part of, of the job? It is to work with everyone. Oh, uh, I love that. Yeah, this, this is a team game. Uh, medicine, in my opinion, is, is the greatest team sport that's out there. No single person can work on their own. We work as part of a team. We provide care as part of a team to our patients. Uh, But besides that, I think seeing patients, 
and, and uh, uh, offering new clinical trials and, and playing my little role in advancing this field is what really gives me joy. It's wonderful. And I would say it's not a little role. It's a huge role, um, especially to those pa the patients that you're treating. It, it's huge. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then just a couple of final questions we ask all of our podcast guests. We call this the PQI podcast to bring awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource. What value do you see in this resource? Oh, great. And that's a good one. Uh, and, and I've seen some of these uh, uh, PQI resources. I know my pharmacist, uh, pharmacy team uh, has also seen that. Uh, I think, you know, when I've looked into it, the, uh, the biggest value that I've found in that resource is that it concises information from various clinical trials, various adverse events and, and efficacy analysis and package inserts which can sometimes get too much. So, so the, the biggest benefit and the value of the ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource is a single concise place uh, to get all the information that you really want for day-to-day -day interaction. Now, of course, if you want to figure out some very uncommon adverse event, uh, something that's very uh, minute or detailed information, uh, go to the original source. But if you want information for day-to-day -day practice, I think ENCODA's PQI resource is a fantastic place. Wonderful. Thank you. And then as our final fun question, um, if you could have dinner with anyone living or in history, who would it be and why? And then I've also been adding on what also what would be on your menu? Oh, uh, <laughs> let's see. Let me open my book of uh, people who I would like to have dinner with. <laughs> you know, I, I, that could be, I could pick so many different things, but the one that comes to my mind right now is uh, is is a music group, Coldplay. Oh, I, yes. yes. Yes, I'm a big Coldplay fan, also a big Yanni fan, Yanni, the, the Greek-Armenian musician who, who plays piano and, and as yes. a um, I'm a big fan of the, both of them. And so I would, it would be wonderful to have a dinner with either of those two. Uh, you know, recently Coldplay came to Atlanta for uh, their concert and, and some of my friends and I went over there. That was one of the oh. best concerts I went to. My husband would be very jealous. Uh, <laughs> that, that's fun. Where was it in Atlanta? What venue? At, at the Benz, Mercedes Benz okay. Stadium. Yes. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then what would you what would you have on the menu when you sit down? Oh yes, um, I'm vegetarian. Okay. I I would I would love to have some pasta. Uh, pasta is one of my favorites. Yes. What kind? Let me think about that, Ginger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you cannot that. you cannot go wrong with. Uh, 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 spaghetti al pomodoro or uh, uh, aioli e olio, pepperoncini. These are simple pastas, but wonderful, delightful pastas if, if you have the fresh ingredients. There you go. You can't go wrong with any of that, I think. Right. Um, that would be a fun dinner, and hopefully they would give you a show after. Too. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you are always a pleasure to work with, and it's been really informative, and I know I have learned a few things today, so I really appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much, Ginger. And, and please keep doing the, the wonderful work that you guys do. I know people benefit from it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Vishani. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's ncoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. Thank you for joining us for season three of the podcast, and we look forward to season four early next year. Thanks, everybody.